This is week three of our Come to the Cross series. It's called The Power in the Cross. And uh, we will continue next week, Easter Sunday morning. We have some very special things planned for you on Easter Sunday morning here uh, as well. And so just invite your friends, invite family. It'll be great to be together online, but uh, it will be a wonderful and celebratory time as well. I find it quite fascinating uh, when you think about the amount of uh, computing power that exists in the palm of your hands compared to even 20 years ago. You know, I read scripture from my phone this morning, and uh, I mean, that's not a fairly new, but it's new in terms of, you know, the last 20 years at least. But how about 75 years ago? And the, and the year was 1946, and this thing that you're seeing on your screen right now, the Electronic Numerical Integrator and Computer, or ENIAC, was essentially the very first computer. And we're going to put a slide up here, uh, kind of the ENIAC by the numbers. It had 17,468 vacuum tubes, 70,000 resistors, 10,000 capacitors, 1,500 relays, 6,000 manual switches. It covered 167 square meters of floor space, weighed 30 tons, guess you're not carrying that around in your pocket, <laughs> consumed 160 kilowatts of electrical power, and you could park a school bus inside of it. That's my favorite stat. You could park a school bus inside of it. Now, if you could go back in time and tell them about, you know, tell them back then, 75 years ago, about how computers would advance. The computer uh, you know, the computing power that they would hold, will hold, all that computers do now, the level of, of sophistication and programmability, all that they'll do for us, they would probably, I think, laugh you out of the room. Now, as I was thinking about this sermon, I was trying to come up with a comparative dynamic to illustrate the foolishness that must have existed in the minds of, of the contemporary, you know, thinkers and teachers, you know, of like Paul and Peter's day, you know, and the other apostles and disciples. That video that we watched just before the sermon really does a good job of, of casting kind of in a comparative way what must have been common thought at the time. That is essentially what the cross and crucifixion were designed for, to inflict as much pain and humiliation publicly publicly. We've talked about this before. So that the worst of society, the, the troublemakers, you know, the, the political, your political enemies, particularly in the Romans case, foreign insurgents, people who would attack and they would capture them, those sorts of things, that they would be dissuaded from starting down that road in the first place. That's why the public nature of it. That's how the Romans held on to their power. Jesus and his followers were seen that way, trying to disrupt the status quo. And Jesus himself, obviously. So when those who came after Jesus flipped it on its head, you know, the, the resurrection, his crucifixion and resurrection, and turned it all around, they said this, you killed him, but he rose to life. It was torture, but it is now a beautiful image of redemption. You tried to humiliate him, but he became his glory. It was meant to create hopelessness, but became hope to all mankind. It was meant to hurt, but it became a tool 
of healing, just like the video showed. It is what I have called before and taught about this before, and I call it the upside-down reality of the kingdom of God. God flips things around. What man intended for evil, God turned around for the good of all. That's actually a, a thought and an idea from Genesis chapter 50 and the life of Joseph. The upside-down reality of the kingdom of God. Let's read this passage where Paul lays out the foolishness of the world in comparison to the wisdom and the power of God. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. Where's the wise person? Where's the teacher of the law? Where's the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since the wisdom of God, the world, through its wisdom, did not know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. And then later he goes on in chapter 2, like we talked about uh, last week, about how Paul determined to, to teach nothing and to know nothing amongst him but Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, in many ways, um, there is still a significant issue for many people when it comes to, you know, the cross and Easter. And I think, you know, much of it has to do with a failure to understand the real reason for and need for the cross and the actual power of the cross to address those needs. Of course, you know, a little sidebar here, the, the world has done a pretty good job of, of co-opting the truth, if I could put it that way, to some degree, and focusing on, you know, bunnies and Easter eggs and chocolate and beautiful spring scenery and all those sorts of things. I, I'm not saying that's all bad um, either, particularly as it gives us, you know, what I would call jumping off points to, to talk about why we do understand, what we understand about newness of life and where it comes from and why we even, why we even celebrate it this time of year. It does give some connection there. But without the power of the cross, we would be in deep lostness, if I can use that word, hopeless striving and seeking, seeking something to save that doesn't exist. Um, the world has been watching in fascination uh, this situation with the Suez Canal and the ship that is stuck in the Suez Canal. There's a picture for you, an overhead picture. Seems like in this day and age, this would be something that would be highly unlikely to happen, but I guess conditions were just right and it got stuck. The ship's name is the Ever Given, uh, um, sailed by uh, Evergreen Shipping Lines. It's a very, very large container ship, uh, and it's messing up the whole shipping world, apparently, uh, a ship, over 300 ships, are stuck waiting to get through. 
You know, one, one would think that they could just hook onto it with something powerful and larger than it and yank it out of there. You know, they have tried this. They had, uh, you know, a dozen plus um, um, boats tied to it and tried to pull it out and, and it just wouldn't budge. It's, it's a really a crazy situation. Like I said, there's over 300 uh, ships stuck waiting on both, you know, Adamo up on both ends. Ships full of even things like livestock that apparently risk running out of food and water and, and, you know, starving and dying. Apparently, and these are fascinating figures to me, that 12% of the world's trade volume, 12% of the world's trade volume goes through the canal. And here's this one. They, they see about $10 billion in cargo a day pass through each day. $10 billion. Staggering. But they're stymied, and their ship is stuck. They need more power, and they, they will eventually get it out. Apparently, yesterday, it started to move a little bit, and we're hoping the tides come up, and they can get water under it, and they've got some big tugboats in there now, ready, like big ones, ready to pull it out, more power. But it's a bizarre dynamic. Um, our lostness, our need as humans, our being stuck in sin, as it were, isn't undeniable problem since original and initial sin that took place at the outset of human creation way back in Genesis. Our need for healing, you know, physical healing, emotional, mental, spiritual, and even, even environmental healing is, you know, I'll use a big word here, ubiquitous. And that just means it's abundant, it's pervasive, and it's universal, it's everywhere. It can't be overlooked or underestimated. With, with a problem that large, this big, and humanity, you know, in the reality of humanity, we need something outside of the system to act within it to overcome it all. Overcome it all. And that is the cross and the sacrificial death of Christ and his triumph over it, over death. And when we enter into it by faith, it becomes the way we overcome, the way we are helped, healed, and held in his hands for eternity. None of this happens without the cross. None. Without the cross, we are lost, stuck forever. The problem though, and, and because this is a problem, the problem is that many still see it, the cross, the crucifixion, and all this idea of resurrection, as foolishness. Some would even go so far as to say it's, a, it's cruel and unnecessary, a byproduct of a faulty or you know, foolish religious system that believes in the concept of evil in the first place. Therein lies the problem. As opposed to, they might say, you know, a, a humanistic response, human ingenuity, acceptance, tolerance to get us there, you know. Or that it is about the journey and not the destination. I would say there's both there. And they may even argue that whether there even is an eternal destination. So therefore, it's all about the journey. And again, here's the difficulty. It's back to the issue of power. Of power. I want to read something. I'm going to read it twice because and, and, I want this to sink in because I think it's important. Um, any worldview, any worldview, any worldview system, religious system, whatever, any worldview that does not include in it the reality of evil as an initial and ultimate issue will succumb to getting stuck in the mud of its own philosophical wake, 
without the power to overcome the evil that it says doesn't exist in the first place. Let me read that again for you. Any worldview that does not include in it the reality of evil as an initial and ultimate issue will succumb to getting stuck in the mud of its own philosophical wake without the power to overcome the evil that it says doesn't exist in the first place. Therein lies the problem. And that is why, what and why Paul talks about the apparent foolishness of the message of salvation in the cross. It goes against what was the philosophy and even theology of the day with the Romans, the Greeks, and the Jews, and anybody who had these philosophies about how the world functions, exists, and, and why the cross was foolish. But it does not, the cross and, and our gospel message does not run aground when it comes up against the seemingly unanswerable questions of the day, the overwhelming trouble of the day, obstacles that seem insurmountable because it is an ultimate and overcoming power. Ultimate and overcoming. A power that provides and creates promise and hope, not empty wisdom and ideas. I, I want us to just take a real quick and cursory look. I'll throw some scriptures in here too. Um, about what the cross provides. Okay, what the cross provides, and we're going to put a slide up for you here. It provides a way to have a relationship with God, ultimately, initially. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So sin and our failure as human beings created separation between us and God and Jesus the power of the cross bridges that divide. Secondly, it provides opportunity for forgiveness of sin. Ephesians 1 verse 7, Paul says this, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of his grace. Plain and simple, a payment for our sin. It provides freedom to all of those who believe. Um, John chapter 8, it says this, If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. That was, this is another verse I didn't put in here, but Jesus said he came, you know, his kind of mission statement was, I came to proclaim freedom for the captives and set the prisoners free. Freedom. Um, it provides new life. Therefore, if anyone in Christ, he's a new creation. That's in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It provides power for us to live daily. The power of the Holy Spirit that's freely given. Acts chapter 1-8 tells us you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. It provides a way to have victory over the enemy. And we'll get to that a little bit more in a moment, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's again uh, chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. And, and one final thing, it provides for us an internal and heavenly home. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Paul speaking about the future. Everything on this list is accomplished and provided only because of the cross and the power that is in it. Over sin, shame, and judgment. Over separation from God and no future. Over the power that sins holds on all of us just because we draw breath as humans. Over the power, powerlessness that is ours as broken and sinful people ever since the garden. And ultimately over death and eternal loss. But we have to come back to this, you know, not losing sight now of one simple but significant, highly significant issue. 
everything we've talked about this morning is all based on on the real existence of evil and an actual enemy who is called by several names. Lucifer, the devil, Satan, the accuser, the father of lies, Beelzebub, and there are multiple other names. And he is not to be taken lightly, okay? He hates the followers of Jesus. He hates Jesus winning. He hates souls getting saved through the power of the cross. And he thought he had won that day on the cross, but God flipped it, flipped the script, if you will. But yet, he's not given up. You know, it's, if you could put it this way, it's still his life mission, if you will. So we still need the cross. So if you can find something other than the actual existence of evil and a very real devil to make sense of all that goes on around you in the world, if you can find something other to explain what's going on in Myanmar right now and the, and the death of innocent people, if you can explain it some other way and explain what happened in Indonesia on a Sunday morning, this Sunday morning celebrating Palm Sunday where two people exploded suicide bombs outside of a church. If you can explain that some other way, if you can find a way to deal with the darkness in your very own soul, well, then you may be the very first to be able to do so, but certainly not the last to try. <laughs> but if you recognize these realities, then you and I should not rush past the cross in a hurry to celebrate the empty tomb. We'll get there. But first, there was the cross. We need the cross, the power of the cross. So as we are about to enter Holy Week, as I have been encouraging us for several weeks to slow down and consider the cross, this week consider the power of the cross, how it is necessary, needed, and completely capable of providing everything that we do need. Let me, let me conclude with this. This is Palm Sunday. And if you, if you don't remember the story, you can go back later and read it. It's in, it's in a couple of the Gospels, but Matthew 21 is, a, is a one place you can find it and read it. And I'd encourage you to do that today. I read it over again this morning. What, what essentially is happening here is, well, it's a fulfillment of prophecy, for one thing, from Zechariah, where it was promised that Messiah will come into Jerusalem. He'll come in as your king riding on a donkey. But Jesus essentially mimics something here that is called the March of the Divine Warrior. Uh, and essentially what it is is, is a, you know, a, con, a, a king who's accomplished his conquest and he's, he's vanquished his enemies, as it were, defeated his enemies. And he's marching now on his war horse with his legions behind him to the center of the city to set up rule and dominion and, you know, stomp in at the, to the middle of their temple, you know, tear down their idols, set up your own, a show of force to declare victory, to take power, and to declare, in, in the case of the Romans, you know, what was called the peace of Rome, which is horribly ironic because they did it in such a brutal, you know, deadly way. The Romans rode all over the land, conquering their enemies with brutal force and taking power wherever they went. And when the followers of Jesus waved their palm branches that day, the Romans knew what was happening. They knew what was happening. They knew that Jesus was a danger to their power. 
Here's the thing, though. Jesus didn't ride in, like I said, on a war horse. He rode in on a humble donkey, which, again, was a fulfillment of prophecy. So everyone who understood this was ready for, you know, all those people on the sides of the road laying down their cloaks and waving their palm branches with the thousands of years of prophecy about your king coming. Everyone was ready for a power play, a showdown, a war, really, to get rid of the Romans. But listen to this. If there's, not, if there's one thing you take home today, he didn't come. Jesus did not come to take power. He came to break power. To break the power of sin through service, submission, and sacrifice by being full of love, mercy, and compassion. Not brute force and domination of enemy, rather love of enemy. Jesus didn't come to take power by force. He came to break power through the cross. That's the power of the the radical, powerful, subversive message of the cross, and it still holds power today. I would encourage you to come to the cross, the cross of Christ that turned the world upside down and ushered in a kingdom like no other with a king like no other. Let's pray.